In a book authored by uh, Chuck Swindoll, he retells the um, rather humorous, anonymous testimony of someone who was um, overworked and, and tired of it. Maybe you can identify. I was standing in my study reading this and just had to laugh out loud when I got to the end of it. Here's what this disgruntled, overworked person had to say. And I quote, I'm tired. For several years, I've been blaming it on middle age, iron poor blood, lack of vitamins, air pollution, water pollution, saccharin, weight, dieting, wax buildup, and a dozen other maladies that make you wonder if it's really worth the effort. But now I found out it's none of those things. I'm tired because I'm overworked and I figured out why. The population of this country is around 300 million, but 98 million are retired. That leaves 202 million to do all the work. But there are 161 million in school, which leaves 41 million to do the work. Of this total, there are 22 million employed by the federal government and another 14.8 million people employed by the state and city government, and none of them are doing any work, which leaves us (laughs) with 4,200,000 people to do all the work. Four million are serving all over the world in the military, and so that leaves 200,000 people to do all the work. 188,000 of them are sick and in the hospital, so that leaves 12,000 to do the work. But there are 11,998 people in prison, so that leaves just two people to do all the work, you and me, and you're standing there reading a book. (laughs) No wonder I'm tired, this person says. (laughs) Well, as I prepared for uh, this particular study, it occurred to me there's a vast difference between being tired because of work and being tired of work. Have you ever met anybody who worked hard at keeping away from work? There probably isn't any better testimony for Christ than someone who works hard enough on the job to get genuinely tired. The average person I have read in America gets paid for 40 hours a week but actually works around 30, and it's even slipping below that. Sick days are all used up, as well as vacation days, personal days, holidays. Few of us have ever heard of someone ever asking their employer for added assignments and more difficult work to do. Now don't misunderstand, the Bible doesn't recommend that Christians become workaholics. As a matter of fact, the quantity of work hours on the job isn't as much an issue in the scripture as the quality of work performed. Paul told the Colossian believers exactly how they were to show up and work on the job. He writes, do your work heartily. As unto the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Do your work, he says, heartily. Interesting word. I had to dig around to find out what it meant. The the Greek word could be translated energetically or diligently. In fact, Buried into into this compound word is the transliterated word zest. How many of you show up at work with the thought, I'm going to work with zest 
today. Sounds like a soap commercial, doesn't it? It's kind of corny. Who shows up on the job with zest? I mean, come on. The truth is, if you showed up at the job with with an energetic attitude, with anything anybody could say was zest, they would tell you, where's the fire? Slow down. Relax. Besides, you're making us all look bad. Right? The trouble is, in the church, we have drawn an artificial line between the secular and the sacred. You could get really excited, and we do, about discipling a group of men. I mean, God definitely will reward diligence in, in that. But how does that compare to doing the laundry or the dishes or laying tile or filing a brief? We have forgotten that we are not working for men, as Paul reminded the Colossians. We are ultimately working for God. In fact, the Latin word vocatio, which gives us our word vocation, literally means a calling, a summons to duty. Any profession was considered your own personal profession of the sovereign glory of God in and through your work. Your your work was at one time in our world considered your own personal estimation of the worth of God. With what we did with our hands, we told people what we thought about God. That's why the Spirit could inspire Solomon to write, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We've come a long way from this idea of vocatio, our vocation being our sacred summons to duty, our sacred calling. The truth is Solomon had a lot to say with how we live at work, the kind of employee we are. In fact, throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon continually warns his sons and daughters who follow along in this quest for a hidden treasure. He says, look, as you're, as you're searching for wisdom, there's somebody I've got to warn you about. And he shows up over and over again. One kind of employee you never want to hire. And you have a headache when you realize you did. This is the worst roommate you could ever have in college. This is the most discouraging player on the team. This is the most difficult person to work around. Solomon calls him the sluggard. What a word. What a name. Even sounds slow, like a slug, doesn't it? Solomon describes him with rather bold and frank uh, language throughout these Proverbs. In fact, uh, as I was just looking through the different characters that we're going to begin to study, this guy kept showing up. He appears 16 times in the book of Proverbs. The word sluggard actually is is best um, defined by the different texts that describe him. So we'll define him by his descriptions that appear. And I'm going to give you some categorical statements of these descriptions as we work our way quickly through them. We're not going to cover all 16, only, I think, 15, okay? All right. Chapter 10, verse 26, you could turn there. And let me give you the principle. His work patterns are undependable. His work patterns are undependable. 
Chapter 10, verse 26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one. There's the word for sluggard to those who send him. In other words, you cannot depend on the schedule of a lazy man. You give him or her a deadline. In fact, Solomon specifically refers here in this text to giving him a message to deliver to someone else. If you use a sluggard to deliver the message, you're going to end up with your teeth on edge. I almost went to the refrigerator and got out a little vinegar and put it on my teeth, but I thought, you wouldn't mind if I didn't do that just so I wouldn't be speaking with authority. But I guess what that means from what I've read is it sets your teeth on edge. It gives you just a funny feeling, like that. Go home and try it. Tell me how it works out next week, okay? It, it will just set your teeth on edge by his failure. You'll kind of grind your, your teeth. Further, notice Solomon says, it's going to be, you give, a, you give a sluggard a message to deliver and it's going to be like smoke to your eyes. What happens? We all don't need to experiment with that. What happens when smoke gets in your eyes? It, it, it stings. It brings tears to your eyes. That's what he's saying. Listen, a sluggard is going to make you cry. He's going to bring tears to your eyes out of pain and frustration. You tell him to deliver that message. You tell him to show up at a certain time, finish the job, and he's late. She loses the message. It was lunchtime. Had to stop off and get a hamburger. Had to run some errands. Before you know it, the post office closed. The day is over. And here's the point. The sluggard doesn't even care. What's the problem? The boss can only bang his head on the wall and take some medicine for ulcers and cry tears of frustration. The work patterns of a sluggard are undependable. Bruce Wolke said, a sluggard is without a moral sense of responsibility to other people. Secondly, the excuses of a sluggard are unbelievable. Look over at chapter 22 and verse 13. The sluggard doesn't want to come to work. He's got to come up with an excuse. So what is he going to say? The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'm going to be killed in the streets. This goes way beyond calling in sick. Have you ever heard this one? <laughs> you know, calling in sick is just too plain Jane. No, no, no. Haven't you heard? There's a lion loose. If I leave, I could be eaten. And the boss is thinking, try it. That'll be okay if you are. Well, it could be true. I guess a lion could be loose, but his excuses are so un- unbelievable that after a while, you are simply in awe of his creative ability to come up with excuses. One author said it's as if the sluggard summons all his creative energy into making excuses rather than making a living. Then again, all sluggards aren't so creative. I I actually heard on the news recently that that an employee had been caught calling in uh, to get out of work, asking his boss if he could miss work so that he could attend his grandmother's funeral. He was allowed to, of course. I mean, by all means, they sent flowers. Six months later, he called in again. It seems his grandmother died again. He even used the same name. Creative or not, this guy wasn't. 
Excuses may be nothing more than, than lies. The believer who is dedicated to professing the glory of God through his vocatio, his calling, will tell the truth, and he will live the truth at work. Benjamin Franklin once said, He that is good at making excuses is seldom good at anything else. First, the work patterns of sluggards are undependable. Secondly, the excuses of of a sluggard are unbelievable. Thirdly, the spirit of a sluggard is unteachable. Look at chapter 26 and notice verse 16. This is getting to the heart and the core of the problem. 26, 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet or a reasonable answer. In other words, you just try to challenge a lazy woman or a lazy man about their careless work or their late appearances or their failure to meet the latest deadline or turn in the latest report, uh, whatever you are waiting on, and they will respond with more logic and reasoning than seven people combined. Just ask him. He's your best employee. You just didn't know it. She's the one who's really working the hardest around this place where you work. How how can you do anything less than give them the biggest compliments and the the largest bonuses? Because if, if it weren't for him or for her, the place would fall apart in a week. Just ask them. They'll tell you why. Solomon said in Proverbs, this chapter, they are wiser and more valuable in their own eyes than anybody else. And listen, the truth is, they are actually costly to the company. They're costly. Their team is always having to pull this guy's weight along. They talk it up, but they don't work. Solomon wrote in chapter 18, verse 9, he who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. In other words, he indirectly destroys. He destroys morale and profit, and you might not be able to track it back to him because he's just related to the problem. But if you can finally track it back, she is the issue, or he is. And they cannot be challenged. They refuse to change. They have all the answers. The spirit of a sluggard is unteachable. Number four, the expectations of the sluggard are unreasonable. They're unreasonable. You listen to a person without any internal initiative. You know, we use nice terminology like that for them. These are people who lack self-motivating objectives. Solomon calls them sluggards. That's just better, isn't it? Lazy loafers. But listen to that sluggard who sits next to you in that college class or works down the hallway from you or across the lathe in the machine shop. They consistently avoid the hard tasks and the late hours in the library. They refuse to pay the price and sweat it out. Yet they talk about everything they are going to have and gain. They have these incredibly high expectations. He's the one that's going to go places. You just talk to him at lunch at work. She's the one that's really going to make it. 
They're going to build this and reach that and win this and do that and get there. And you watch, you will see. But then you watch their lives at work and discover that they are expecting everything without ever lifting a hand. Listen, without turning for the sake of time, what Solomon says, the sluggard, in chapter 20, verse 4, does not plow after the autumn, so he asks during the harvest, but finds nothing. Well, go ahead and turn. Chapter 20, verse 4. The sluggard (laughs) does not plow after the autumn, but notice this. He asks, he asks during the harvest, but finds nothing. He didn't plow. He didn't plant. But he goes out to his field and says, well, where is it? I'm ready. His expectations are absolutely, absolutely unreasonable. In chapter 21, turn a page over, verse 25 and 26, probably in the most blunt terms yet for the sluggard. This self-deceived, misguided, self-centered, arrogant person. It says, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death. All day long, he is craving. Literally, all day long, he is desiring a desire. In other words, every day he wakes up, and he finally gets out of bed, and he desires another desire. He, he simply lives a life of coveting. But his expectations are unreasonable. His spirit is unteachable. His excuses are unbelievable. And his work patterns are undependable. So he goes out to a field, and it's hard to imagine, but he says, I have done nothing. I'm ready for the harvest. He will expect you as his employer to pay up without ever paying in. And he can't quite figure out why you might have a problem with that. One more thing. One more description about the private life of a sluggard, and that is it's unaccountable. The private life of a sluggard is unaccountable. Chapter 26, verse 14. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. Solomon just just puts it out there, doesn't he? He uses the metaphor of a double-hinged door. Uh, We have one in leads from our kitchen to our dining room. It can turn either way. It can swing either way. Double hinges. There's a lot of movement, but that door's really not going anywhere. I can turn it fast and slow, and I can just stand there and flip back and forth. And A lot of movement, feel the air, but it's going nowhere. No forward motion. This is the sluggard in bed. He's turning back and forth. There's a lot of motion, but no forward motion or movement. Look at verse 15. He writes, The sluggard is so lazy that he buries his hand in the dish and is too weary to bring it back to his mouth again. This is total apathy. It's as if he needs someone to feed him. He doesn't want to take his hand from the dish to his mouth. This employee, this roommate, this co-worker... Solomon writes, is headed for disaster. Now Solomon has one solution for the sluggard that he believes the Spirit of God through him will 
make a difference. Go back to chapter 6 where he offers this unique solution. Look first at verse 9. He further describes the life behind closed doors. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Notice verse 11. Verse 11. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. In other words, you are being robbed of an excellent life. And you don't even realize the burglar has moved in and is living in your guest room. You're, you're cutting corners at work. You're coming in late, making up excuses, not filling out the, the, the terms of the contract. You're dead weight in the boardroom, on the dorm floor. You're allowing your life, he says, to literally be stolen away. Look at verse 10. Well, come on. Most believe this is the word of the sluggard. A little sleep. A little slumber, a little, it's just a little folding of the hands. I'm just, I'm just taking a little nap. Now, this is not the nap you took this afternoon, so just relax, okay? <laughs> Solomon is not referring to a nap brought on by fatigue, the end of a long week. It isn't that kind of a nap. One author writes this commentary, the sluggard will lose his life, not everything overnight, but just the whiling away, minute by minute, inch by inch, just a little here and a little there. He will waste his life away by degrees. You know, the reason this is in here is because it affects all of us, doesn't it? There is a tendency in all of us to to reach for the easy chair, to avoid the hard task, And so he says, uh, part of the solution now for for the one who's just, he's already arrived at the status of sluggard, probably wouldn't admit it, but needs help. Here's the solution. Look at verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. (laughs) What a great solution. Have you ever watched an ant? Have you ever had ants you didn't want in the house and you watched them for a while? I've watched them out on the sidewalk, the driveway, the backyard. They build their little mounds and they're actually fascinating to watch. When our kids were smaller, we, we, we bought one of those little ant farms, a little plexiglass looking aquarium, you know, with sand and a bunch of ants in there and, and watched them work, dig amazing little tunnels and store food and They just simply worked all the time. Solomon said, go study the ant. Study the ant. That's the solution. So I did a little extra study on the ant to try to figure out what Solomon might have had in mind. It's hard to know where to start. But I found out some interesting things. One single ant colony can include... Over 5 million busy ants. Soldier ants to guard the colony. Worker ants that, you know, they have all their jobs to do. They're cleaning or caring for the queen ant or gathering food. All of it implanted in their created instincts by God. It's amazing. Argentine ants keep herds of cows. They are plant lice. The Mediterranean ant makes biscuits from seeds. 
Honey ants store their food in living storage tanks. Amazon ants have employees to help with the work. There are literally thousands of species. They carry on complex organizations, building projects, and communications systems. I discovered that ants can lift up to 30 to 40 times their weight. Now, we've seen them going across the side while carrying some big stuff. But in terms of understanding what this ratio would be, that would be like you and I leaving here, going out into the parking lot, and lifting an SUV on our back. The red fire ant was interesting. He lives a very organized life, literally never stops doing their job. Red ants are extremely clean and constantly clean the mound. Some of you moms know your kids have no red ant DNA, right? (laughs) The leaf-cutting ant builds mounds that contain as many as 3,000 chambers and house up to 4 million ants in one mound. By the way, that's twice the population of West Virginia. South Carolina, it's bigger than South Carolina, Oklahoma. Now, here's the amazing thing. Look back at your text. Solomon writes in verse 7. He says, The ants have no chief, officer, or ruler. Can you imagine the state of North Carolina surviving, or any state for that matter, without police officers and government officials and civil support systems? Nothing is provided for the ant, they do it all themselves. And in one colony, four million can all work together without chiefs, officers, and rulers. They they just work hard, and they get all they need. One woman sent in a brief story of what happened when she visited her parents' home on the farm. Boy, this is... You can just imagine this. Her five-year-old niece had come along, and she was really excited because... uh, um, grandpa and grandma were, were farmers and, and uh, the corn was ready to be picked. She'd never picked corn and shelled it, so that was going to be the excitement. And So they went out there and this little five-year-old niece really tore into it. And At first the work was fun, but after a few minutes, this little five-year-old looked up at her grandmother and said, you know you can buy this in the store, don't you? <laughs> Didn't take long. Five-year-old caught it. We're so used to it. It's all packaged and delivered and ready and prepared. You ever take your kids to a strawberry patch? There is a test of sanctification for you to teach them how to get it for themselves. Work is fun until you have to do it. What's amazing is that Solomon says that these ants seem to enjoy work without three kinds of offices or ants in this case. He says, first of all, they do it all without a chief. This word in the Hebrew language could be rendered judge. There isn't any need for any ant to settle a dispute, decide some duty, or, or direct some issue of labor. The ants just move around and, and over each other. The task is more important than anything else. And this word also provides sort of the nuance of a guide. Imagine a a mound uh, with four million ants and no traffic signals. I like that part, don't you? But can you imagine them being able to get where they're going with nobody to guide them? Nobody to say, you go there, you go there. Well, I don't want to go there. Okay, you go over here. 
No judge settling any dispute. There are none. Helps not to have a sin nature, doesn't it? Solomon goes on to mention that the ants don't need an officer. This is a word that refers to someone who literally writes down uh, to list personnel. This is the guy that makes sure everybody stays on task and in line. This is the same word that appears in the book of Exodus for the Egyptian officers who kept the Israelites at their task. In other words, then, there aren't any ants standing there cracking little whips over other ants if they come in late or sleep on the job or slow down the assembly line. No need for officers. The third unnecessary office in the ant colony is a ruler. Now, while ants do serve uh, the queen who lays eggs all her life, up to a million a day, what Solomon means is that ants do not need a supervisor. The word could be translated to either challenge them to work or praise them when they do work. And I thought that was intriguing. As hard as they work, they have nobody that says, great job, and they still work. They, it struck me, they do not need restrictions. That's the chief. They do not need requirements. It's the officer. They do not need rewards. That's the supervisor. They don't need anyone to make them, manage them, or motivate them. They are internally managed and motivated by instinct to serve for the good of the colony. No wonder Solomon says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and find wisdom. Be wise. Go to the anthill. Look and learn. It just might rescue you from wasting your life away. Now, what observations can we make about ants and us? Let me give you several quickly. Number one, they seem to have an internal eye on the future. If you look at verse 8 here, it says that the ant prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. That is, they know the season of being able to work and the season when they cannot work and gathering food will be over. Wouldn't it be great to consider the fact that Christ will gather us before the Bema seat and reward us for glorifying the Father by our good works? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, where every man's work will be revealed, that we would, in fact, work for the night is coming. We would have this internal clock going that one day we will stand before Christ. Thought it was interesting. I flew to this funeral Pastor David was talking about in Pennsylvania on Friday. Left early in the morning, got back uh, early, uh, late at night, and but it was worth it. This man was such a wonderful mentor. You know, he preached for me a number of times. Wendell Kempton, in fact, was scheduled to preach in July again. But it was interesting. Michael Loftus, David's older brother, who's now the president of ABWE. The Association of Baptists for World Evangelism, who took Dr. Kempton's place as president, got up and his first words, he talked about how, how um, Dr. Kempton is now with the Lord. His days, the days in his book, 
having been numbered, have come to a close. And then he gave the number of days, 12,000-something. Struck me. I wonder how many days I have left. I wonder how many days you have left. There's something about numbering our days, David said, that gives us a heart of wisdom. There seems to be this internal this internal clock, seasonal clock in the ant that keeps them pressing forward. And a trip to the anthill would result in some very practical questions. What kind of employee are we? What's our work ethic? What kind of student are you? How hard do you work? What does the teacher think when he or she sees you come into the classroom? What does your boss think when you show up and you pass him in the hallway? What does he think of the quality of your work? Don't forget, according to the Word of God, the review that really matters is not at the end of the fiscal year. It is at the Bema seat where Christ will evaluate not only the work and quality of our hands but the attitude of our hearts. Observation number two. Ants labor according to their divinely created calling. If they are worker ants, they work. If they're queen ants, they lay eggs. If they're cutter ants, they gather leaves. If they are army ants, they guard the mound. It gets back to this calling of God for the believer, your, your uh, vocatio. Uh, your, your calling happens to be your, your profession. Whatever it is, as you walk with God, you're doing right now. Honor God in it. Consider it a sacred calling. You, you are not working for a paycheck. You are working for the glory of God, and God is looking at the job you're doing, and I am doing. What is the quality What is the excellence of what our hand does? Frankly, a lazy Christian is a contradiction of terms. Listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Ephesians 6, 6 and 7. Servants, you could think of it in terms of employees, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to obeying your real master, Christ Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants, doing what God wants you to do, and work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you are really serving God. That's a great paraphrase. Your work is a sacred calling from and unto Christ. One more observation. It may provide some of the secret of ants' endurance. They unite their efforts and pool their strength and resources. I have watched an ant struggling under a load, haven't you? Just watch and another one will come along. And they're not going to arm wrestle to see who has to carry it. They're just going to both start carrying it. And then another one comes along. And before you know, they're carrying the picnic basket away. They work together well. 
What a great illustration for the family at home and the family at church. Listen, the advancement of the gospel is not in big chunks of service, some magnificent act of ministry. It's people chipping in to rather mundane tasks that maybe aren't all that exciting. If, if the church, if, if our church was effective today in demonstrating the grace of God, in delivering the truth of the gospel, it was because there were more than a thousand people we didn't see who were doing a thousand different things. They'll never be rewarded on the platform. They'll probably go unnoticed by the majority of the church, but their faithful service working even if they aren't rewarded on this planet matters to them. In studying for this message, I read a, I read a lot of things about a lot of different kinds of occupations. This one caught my attention. I'll try to wrap it up here with this. Uh, this is uh, a great illustration of the critical nature of our work in the gospel and uh, why we should serve with excellence. The Texas Army National Guard, we've heard of them. I'd never heard of a group of people that allow them to stay alive. They're a group of special workers called riggers. Anybody in here know what a rigger is? Okay, a few of you do. Their job is to fold and pack the parachutes the soldiers are going to use when they jump from an airplane at 5,000 feet. These people are intensely dedicated to their task. In fact, they have a creed. The rigors creed is, and I quote, I will be sure always. They know jumpers need assurance that everything regarding their shoot is perfect. I mean, think about it. There's no room for error. In, in, in the 20 minutes it takes to meticulously pack an MC-11 military parachute, exactly 30 folds are required in a certain way. And so the rigors creed further states, I will never let the idea that a piece of work is good enough. There can be no compromise with perfection. They know mistakes cost lives. And maybe you think, well, now, wait a second. That's a little too perfectionistic for me. Not if you got to jump out of an airplane with their work on your back. Suddenly, it's very important how perfect it was. Can you imagine being told you're, you're in the guard? Listen, your parachute was packed by that sluggard over there. We think he stayed awake and did 30 faults. You know, he loses track, doesn't usually count. It'll be okay. No, his work matters to you if you're jumping out of a plane with it attached to your back. And so our work matters, not just to one another, but to God. If God would take note of the ant and commend them to us, in fact, design them so that they could become an illustration, a teaching tool for every one of us, 
Imagine what we mean to him. Might we one day stand before him? Maybe you have served as a faithful secretary. Keep serving. Maybe it's being a dedicated teacher. Maybe it's a a mechanic and uh, you charged only for what was done. You're a doctor. You took time to listen to your patients. You're a cook. You only worked with fresh food and served it. You're a salesman who actually cares for your clients. A student who tackled every assignment. You see, remember, ladies and gentlemen, you are performing your vocatio. And you're going to get up tomorrow morning and we're all going to go and we're going to be summoned. We're going to be called by God. And don't ever make the mistake to think, to think that I have a calling and, and my job is sacred and yours isn't. You don't find that in the Bible. You have a calling from God. Get up tomorrow morning and let's in the name of Christ serve him with utter excellence and dedication and passion because we happen to live, especially in this culture, surrounded by professional sluggards. So let's be different. And so glorify our Christ. And one day, one day, can you imagine standing before him and hearing him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we ask that your spirit so begin to change the way we think about our tasks our jobs, that we consider them sacred duty as the Puritans of old who believed that a profession was a personal profession of the worth of God. Whether it's laying brick or tile or filling cavities, counseling, taking a class, Whatever it might be, this room, Father, is filled with hundreds of sacred callings. May we be an assembly of people who will tomorrow be that distinctive testimony, show up with zest, with a smile on our face, ready to please you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen.